You can open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47, and this may be the most amount of verses that I've ever attempted to make it through on a Sunday morning, and so uh, it feels a little bit maybe like a machine gun going off. I tried to buffer that this morning, (laughs) but the fact of the matter is it is one of the most dense uh, sections of text as Jesus means to prove himself as equal with God and to have hope in that equality. Amen? So strap on your (laughs) seatbelts. We're getting ready to hop into the deep end of Christ and his identity. John 5, verses 19 through 47. Dictionary.com defines the English word hope like this. Hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. Again, hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. There's an ancient Greek fairy tale about the origins and the reality of hope. That fairy tale says that Zeus gave a man a vessel full of of nothing but good things, and told him to keep the lid on it. The man, however, could not fight back his curiosity, and he lifted the lid, and when he did so, all the good things began to escape. In haste, the man replaced the lid just in time to catch her hope. The story's moral center is true. Hope is a good thing to have. However, misplaced hope is deception. It's deceptive. Therefore, it results in disaster. And it is one thing to misplace hope in temporal things. And, and we all do that, right? If, you, if you've ever lived through an economic downturn and you had uh, been putting money uh, away in the markets or whatever, in, in some little amount of way, your heart is attached to the hope that one day that that money will be there. And not only will it be there, it will have grown and given you the opportunity to, to receive more and maybe even to retire. And if you lived there and went through a recession and watched that go in half, like we have uh, some of us in the last few years, we can realize that we have put our hope in something temporal, and that could be depressing and cause anxiety. However, misplaced hope in something eternal is much more grave of a mistake The things of this world will pass away, and as one of my friends often reminds me, it's all going to burn anyway. Don't put your hope in it. However, to misplace our hope in the eternal is is much more problematic. Perhaps the most sobering words found in the New Testament concerning misplaced hope are those of Jesus toward the end of his most famous sermon that we are quickly approaching here, the Sermon on the Mount. He preached this, and you're very familiar with these words, but I want us to look at them together and read them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, notice they call Jesus, Lord, Lord, And they say this, that they had done all this ministry in his name, right? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? You could say there, and in your name perform many miracles. And then he declared to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
These folks had misplaced their eternal hope. They knew the name of Jesus. They called him Lord. They apparently spent a life in ministry. (laughs) And he says, go away from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, that is this sermon that Jesus is preaching, listen here, and we so quickly pass by this in a hyper-grace world and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. You see, friends, Jesus warned that false Christs would arise and in, uh, it is incumbent upon every Christian in every generation of Christians to make sure that we are worshiping the Christ that is found in Scriptures, that we do not put our hope, our eternal hope, in a Jesus that does not exist in the text. Just recently, I have a friend who's pastoring a church and there's a crew of folks who have arisen and decided that Jesus' deity is no big deal, (laughs) that he wasn't God in the flesh, and that that it shouldn't be something that we should, as Orthodox Christians, believe. But I would argue, as he did and ultimately told them, if you don't believe in in the deity of Christ, you do not believe in the Christ of the Scriptures. And we will see today that it is extremely clear that Christ has made himself equal with God and that we should put our hope in him. If you're visiting Capital City Church this morning, you're joining us on a journey through the four Gospels as we study the life of our Savior Jesus. It's difficult to know exactly how far into the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus that we are. However, based on the three Passovers that we find in the Gospel of John, we we think that we're somewhere about a year and a half into Jesus' ministry at this point in John 5. By and large, up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been wildly popular. But if you were with us last week in John 5, 1 through 18, you will remember that Jesus returned to the religious center of Israel, Jerusalem. He healed a man on the Sabbath, telling him to take up his bed and walk around the city. Effectively, Jesus does a work on the Sabbath, and then he tells a man to work on the Sabbath, and he tells that man, while you're carrying your mat around, just walk around. In the present tense, that heated up the discussion, and, and we ended last week understanding that, that that was so offensive to the Jewish mind that in their hearts they desired to murder him. Remember John 5.18, where we concluded last week, the story uh, is recorded like this, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So I want us to pause for just a moment and realize kind of what's going on, and the feel of this sermon will, will feel just a little bit different because we are in somewhat of a courtroom setting. There's an accusation going on here. Jesus has, has done this work. They have seen the work. And they are mad at him, and they want to persecute him, verse 17 says, and ultimately, they are desiring to kill him. And why? He is making himself equal with God. And we might ask, how in the world is he, is he doing that? Well, one, we know the text says that he's calling God his own father, and is making him equal in that Jewish uh, world where you are the son of, you are the inheritor of, you, you ultimately carry on the authority, especially a firstborn son of the Father. 
And the Jews were understanding that, and they did not like that. We'll see today, friends, that religious Israel had made the grave mistake of misplacing their eternal hope. Rex read it just a little bit ago, but they had forgotten that God had promised that a prophet like Moses would arise in Israel and that there was a new covenant, not like the Mosaic covenant, that was to come. You see, verse 45 is going to tell us that they had set their hope in Moses. And Jesus is going to challenge that, and he is challenging that in his claim to be equal with God. And Jesus is the new covenant giver. We're familiar with that term. And he was claiming to be Messiah. But in verses 19 through 47 of John 5, he is going to tell us now, I am claiming to be equal with God. Equal with God. Beloved, today Jesus is going to give us a 28-verse discourse on his equality with God, setting himself apart from every false Christ to be taught and, and, and that has been taught and that has been claimed of the past. And in the end, he will effectively answer the, this question, how can we know where to set our hope? If we misplace our eternal hope in anything other uh, uh, than Jesus, uh, the Jesus of the Scriptures, we will one day hear him say, go away from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. These 28 verses are nothing short of jumping into the deep end of the swimming pool. Did you do that as a kid? Did your mom take you or your dad take you to get swimming lessons? Did you ever get so excited with all the other kids that you, uh, and you thought in your overconfidence that you were going to hop into the pool and it was the shallow end only to hop in and, <laughs> and there was nothing under you? Well, that's kind of what happens, and you have to start to tread water immediately, and Jesus is being challenged here. He's being accused of being equal with God, and he's going to say to that, amen, and he's going to give us eight different reasons. This is what you should never do, the preaching classes tell you. Three points. That's it. That's all you get. Well, I guess Jesus didn't take that class. He's going to give us at least eight today. We're going to have to work through them quickly, answering this big idea, how can we know where to set our eternal hope? Are you ready? Can you tread? Are your seatbelts on? In these verses, Jesus is going to make five audacious, bold claims of his equality with God. Number one, that he is equal with God in works. Number two, equal with God in authority. Number three, equal with God in honor. Number four, equal with God in his ability to give eternal life in the present tense. And number five, he is going to claim to be equal with God in his ability to resurrect and judge the dead in the future. I'm going to go over those. I know some of you are taking notes. Uh, Praise the Lord, we're recording. Amen. Uh, After making those five bold claims, Jesus, like uh, in a courtroom setting, is then to call on three witnesses to verify the five claims of equality with God. Here comes those witnesses. Number one, the witness of John the baptizer. Number two, the witness of his miraculous works. And number three, the witness of the Father in the Scriptures. That's a lot. I've lost some of you already. Some of you are sleeping already, right? Don't sleep. We got to wake up. (laughs) This is a lot coming at you. And it was a lot coming at those. 
who are trying to understand the nature of Christ. Look with me there at John chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Jesus made himself equal with God. This is one of the five. And equating his works with the Father's works. Therefore, Jesus answered, verse 19, answered what? The religious elites claimed that he was making himself equal with God. From verse 18, so Jesus was saying to them, truly, truly, this is always in the imperative, in your, if you have a Greek New Testament or you want to study up on the Greek language, right? It's this idea, it's loud, it's, it's vibrant, it's imperative, it's like a command, truly, truly, verily, verily, some translations, amen and amen. In other words, listen up. I say to you, the Son can do nothing. Now pause, we're in, in equal with works here. Doing is a reference to works, and Jesus is making himself equal with God's works. Look back up to verse 17, where Jesus said, My Father is working until now. That is present tense. On the Sabbath, the Father was working, and I myself am working. What is the implication of that? I do what the Father does. He does it. I do it. We're one. So Jesus says the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Therefore, in this context, the Father was working to heal the man on the Sabbath. And so then was Jesus. The one does not work without the other. We can remember that Jesus in his humanity, when faced with the imminency of the punishment of the cross at the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed three times in Matthew 26. Verse 39 records it like this, My Father, is, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is submitted to the Father. He is committed to only doing what the Father does. And, and the writer of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews will say that it, that it pleased the Father to crush the Son. And Jesus says, is there any other way? <laughs> Knowing the cross was before him. The Father is moving Jesus towards the cross and Likewise, Jesus is then moving towards the cross. One of my favorite Trinitarian verses is found in Acts uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 28, where, where, where uh, Luke writes and, and says that, that God paid for the sins of the world with his own blood. Speaking of the Father. Now, wait a second. I thought the Son paid for, paid for the sins of the world with his own blood. Yes. Was it the Father? Yes. Was it the Son? Yes. <laughs> They were equal in works. See, dear friends, whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner and vice versa. They are equal. Verse 20 gives us the motive for that relationship, saying this, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. The beloved verses 19 and 20 made uh, Jesus makes himself there, number one, equal with God in works. But now, Jesus, number two, will make himself equal with God in authority. And if they thought that the man's healing after 38 years was amazing, Jesus says that, he will, uh, uh, that they will one day marvel at his authority to raise the dead. Look there in verse 21. 
For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The first century, you've got to get back here, and we always talk about this, and we understand when we go to Bible studies and, uh, we, we, and we study our text, we, we, we always want to come with the, the precept, the understanding that if we want to truly understand what the text says, we don't ever say to us, what does it mean to me? We say, what does it mean in the context of what is being said? What did it mean to the first century Jewish hearer? What did it mean? Uh, what did the author mean for it to mean to the people he wrote it to? If you want to know what your Bible says, you've got to ask that question. Then we can follow up and say, what does this mean for me? <laughs> it may mean that I need to repent or follow or praise. When we come to the text, we have to dig in. What did it mean to the first century Jewish mind who was steeped in the Old Testament? And if there was anything the Jewish people knew, it was that they understood that it was only God who could raise the dead. So as Jesus equates himself with God's unique ability in verse 21, he again is making a striking right, a statement of equality with God. We might say that, well, he was a prophet and he was just saying what the prophet said, like Elijah in the Old Testament. But Elijah was used like a tool, like a, a prophet to raise the dead. You'll remember that army of, uh, in that valley of dry bones. And God would say to him, speak these words, right? And, and, then, and then God worked through uh, Elijah. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying there. He says of himself that he gives life to whom he wishes. He's not just a tool. He has authority. And deity. And just like the Jewish people knew that it was God's alone prerogative to raise the dead, it was certainly God's alone prerogative to judge sin. So we can imagine that when Jesus said in verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that those hearing those statements, right, undoubtedly understood Jesus is God, uh, is God is, he is calling himself, he is saying that I am equal with the Lord, I have all authority to judge. In the Jewish mind, that's ridiculous. God alone sees sin. God alone judges for that sin. God is holy, God is not a man, they would be saying. So Jesus has claimed equality with God in his works and in his authority. Now let's take a look at the third claim to equality is found in verse 23. Jesus claims to be equal with God in honor. After saying that he had been given all judgment, verse 23 states why all judgment, it says, was given to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We see the oneness, right? We understand it's not hard for us to get what Jesus is saying. They are, they are telling him, the prosecution essentially is saying, you are making yourself equal with God. He says, amen. Yes, I am. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Behind our English verb to honor is the Greek verb temao. shows up four times there in verse 23. The verb can carry the sense of uh, setting a price or a value on something. 
In addition, tamao means to show high regard for someone or something. I couldn't help but think, and my mind wandered as I, as I lament a little bit for our country. And when I think about Jesus as a king, I think American Christians, however this will work out in our new bodies, are going to struggle with understanding Jesus is a king. You may or may not like Donald Trump or our current president and just go into any kind of conversation about them and you'll hear people deride them and and speak horribly of them. (laughs) I'm telling you what, that is not happening in a kingdom, beloved. You will show honor, you will pay honor is the way it is. As this contest suggests, when Jesus judges the world, all will honor the Son as they honor the Father. And speaking of the Father, honor and, and judgment, Isaiah 45.23 records the Father saying this, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. <laughs> Those are words are familiar to us. Those are words of honor and judgment, and, and they're familiar because the Apostle Paul quotes them in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. However, this time, the Scripture is not speaking of the Father who is speaking as, as it did in Isaiah, but the Son. It says this in verse 9, God highly exalted Him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every ever name. Have you just paused for a second? I don't know what that's going to look like. But certainly the scripture right here says that Jesus will inherit a name that is higher than Yahweh's name, an honor that is higher than Yahweh's honor, the name that is above every other name. Show honor, pay honor, pay homage to the Son. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, here we go, every knee will bow, here's the quote of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the oneness even in that statement. The one is the same. The honor is the same. The two uh, uh, need uh, the honor given to God alone. Beloved, in response to the religious elites accusing Jesus of making himself equal with God, so far Jesus has agreed with their conclusion He has made himself equal in works. He has made himself equal in authority. And he has made himself equal in honor, saying that he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This brings us to the fourth of Jesus' five claims of having equality with God. Verses 24 through 26 shows Jesus is having the ability to give eternal life. To give it. Notice verse 24. Truly, truly, wake up, right? I say to you, He who hears my word, maybe mark that out, that's going to become important here soon, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, here it comes again. I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They will live. These two powerful verses help us to understand that those who hear or listen to or obey 
Jesus is teaching, right? They, they hear them and they act, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. Those who listen and obey Jesus' teaching effectively believe not just in Jesus, but the Father who sent him. Hearing the Son is equal to hearing the Father. And notice that hearing the Son means that someone will have passed out of their current condition, which is eternal death, to a new condition, eternal life. Although Jesus would raise people from the dead during his earthly ministry, he is not speaking of physical resurrection here. He is speaking of a resurrection from spiritual death, the spiritual death that our ancestor Adam has passed on to every human being. We don't like that in our, in our American fair minds, right? Why do we get Adam's sin? Paul answers that question, Romans 9 through 11. Who are you, O oh man? Will the pot tell the potter what to do? The Apostle Paul picks up on Adam's sin being passed on to all humanity in Romans 5.12, writing this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. There is a spiritual death. There is a physical death. That physical death is proof that there is a spiritual death. And remember those familiar words found in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Skip down to verse 18, which says this, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. He's in Adam's sin. Dear friends, the Bible says in Mark 1, 15, that Jesus came offering eternal life, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent means that we need to turn around from following our own worldly desires and sinful desires to following after and literally follow or mimic the life of Christ. Today we're going to celebrate a baptism, and it is this wonderful picture of of, of, of the death of one kind of life and a raising to life of another. It is the first step and many steps as a Christian that we take in obedience uh, to, to essentially say, I am willing to die to that old life and I'm willing to follow Christ in this new one. It is the, the first of many thousands of steps that God will call us by His Holy Spirit to follow after Him, repent, However, mimicking Christ's life will not take you from eternal death to life. Just trying to read your Bible and, and do what he says is, is, is not going to be enough. You must believe in the gospel. You must believe that Jesus was punished by the Father for your personal sin on the cross, that he died and that he rose from the grave. And, and, and as much as America likes to make Easter about Easter eggs and cool dresses and hats... <laughs> Right? We come back to it. Adam's sin caused death. Jesus' death causes life. If you're an Adam, you have sinned and you have died and you will go to the grave. If you're in Christ, uh, you have sinned, you are going to die. But in God's promise of raising Christ from the dead, we have hope. He overcame the grave. Amen. 
I want to ask you, have you believed? You see, friends, Jesus is the giver of eternal life. He can give it. Repent, turn, believe for eternal life. Verse 25 says that those who hear will live. Have you heard? Have you listened? For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Give it to Christ. Give life away. Just like I do. Equal with God. Repent and believe in Christ if you have not. Put your hope in the only one who can save. Amen? This brings us to the fifth and final claim of Jesus making himself to be equal with God, where Jesus had claimed to be equal with God and giving eternal uh, spiritual life in the present. Now he is going to claim equality with God in his power to resurrect and judge the dead in the future. Again, if you can put yourself back into those first century sandals for a Jew to accept the fact that that even the Messiah would not have been thought of as as a person that was going to, to resurrect the dead and to judge them, possibly judge, but certainly not resurrect them. Look there in verse 27, and he gave him, that is God gave him, Jesus' authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Please take a second to underline that and highlight that title, Son of Man. If you just, uh, every time you come across it in the Gospels, you ought to make maybe a line or underline it or highlight it and make a line over to your, to your, uh, uh, to your margin, right? Hopefully you have a nice margin Bible uh, that you can write it in, right? And make this, this connection because when Jesus is saying Son of Man to those Jewish ears, they are hearing Daniel 7. They're hearing Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and the Son of Man who comes up to the Ancient of Days. We've spoken about it many times before, and all authority is given to him. And when Jesus is saying, Son of Man, try to put your Jewish ears on. He's saying, the one who has been given authority by God. Remember that Daniel, chapter 7 Verses 13 and 14 prophetically speak of the Messiah who will be given all authority on earth. So Jesus proclaiming to be the Messianic Son of Man to having all authority says, do not marvel at this. (laughs) Certainly they are marveling, right? You've got to imagine sometimes what the faces of people look like. And it's such a privilege to get out here, to stand up here and watch all of the faces in the room and... and, uh, See how people respond, and, and don't you wonder, right? Don't marvel at this. Why do you think he says this? i got to think because their jaw is on the ground and their teeth are scattered, right? Who do you think you are? Don't marvel at this, he says. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That is the Son of Man's voice, speaking of himself, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those committed, uh, who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. <laughs> Don't marvel. Beloved, the Jewish people did not expect the Messiah to have the kind of sovereign authority and power to eternally judge nor call the physically dead into resurrected 
life. Are you holding on? We're treading water, I know. I see some of you, you're, you're struggling. Just take a breath. Don't let the lactic acid build up. Just relax a little. We're on the final point. In the Jewish mind, resurrection and judgment were all roles that were reserved for God alone. So as Jesus informs those religious leaders who are attempting to kill him for making himself equal with God, he is adding fuel to their fire of hatred by assuming the roles of God and the roles that God alone can do, that is, resurrect and judge the dead. Dear friends, in these verses, Jesus has made five bold and audacious claims. He has made himself equal with God in works, equal with God in authority, equal with God in honor, equal with God in the ability to grant eternal life, and finally, equal with God in the authority to resurrect and judge the dead. Each of these truths affirms why the religious Jews are now seeking to persecute and kill Jesus. Verse 30 is a hinge point in this discourse from the Savior. Jesus defines his earthly relationship to the Father and says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I think there's probably room for another sixth equality with God and the will of God, but I ran out of pages. You'll have to do that study on your own. Beloved, Jesus has made nothing short of audacious claims, incredible claims. That means not credible, right? Unless they're true. He's made them of himself in these first 10 verses. So now, like any good lawyer, he is going to call three witnesses to verify his claims to deity. Notice he says in verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Much like our court system today, if there are eyewitnesses, if there are witnesses, you bring them in, right? And those witnesses justify the things that have been said and done. And and is Jesus now moving to give us these three witnesses? We'll not have the time to go through the next 15 verses closely, but keep treading water here in the deep end of the pool. The three witnesses that Jesus calls are John the baptizer in verses 32 through 35, Jesus' miraculous works in verse 36, and the Father himself as he recorded uh, all these things, or as he is recorded in the scriptures in verses 37 through 47. John the baptizer witnessed one. Jesus' miracles, witness two, and the Father in the Scriptures, witness three. All three of these witnesses will proclaim to us that if we can put our hope in Jesus, the equal of God, then we will have eternal hope. Amen? The first witness to this truth is John the baptizer. And notice that after telling the religious leads that John testified about Jesus in verse 33, Jesus sadly tells them in verse 35, that they were for a while willing to rejoice in his light. They were excited. It had been nearly 400 years since a prophet had been in Israel. And John the Baptist shows up preaching and proclaiming that there's one coming. There's one coming. He himself was not that person. 
Not the Messiah, but uh, the Messiah would be one who came after him. And when Jesus emerged from the temptation, it was John who pointed out to the crowds who were there for baptism, many thousands, even um, many scholars believe hundreds of thousands, John baptizes. And he points Jesus out coming out of that wilderness experience, and he says, behold, right? It do. <laughs> like in this, in this uh, imperative, behold, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And they were willing for a while to rejoice in his light. So the first witness Jesus calls to his defense of being equal with God was John the baptizer, and the second is found in verse 36, the witness of Jesus' miracles. Jesus said in verse 36, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Remember that in this context, Jesus has done a work, remember, on the Sabbath by healing the man who had been crippled 38 years. So when Jesus is saying, the works that I do testify about me, he is referring to the miracles that he is doing. Unfortunately, we use the word miracle much too lightly, don't we? Remember just last week when the University of Wyoming was a tremendous underdog to Texas Tech and won the game in double overtime. <laughs> you remember that? Did you guys watch? I almost shut it off like four minutes in. I was like, I can't watch this. Right? And then, in much short of a miracle, <laughs> this is my point, right? You may have been saying, this is unbelievable. You may have been tearing your shirt and throwing it at the TV, or maybe you were at the game. I don't know, right? And maybe you said, it's a miracle. The University of Wyoming beat Texas Tech. No, it's not a miracle. God's sweet providence, yes. <laughs> but not a miracle. A miracle will be this week when we beat the Texas Longhorns. No, <laughs> in Texas. <laughs> that still will not be a miracle, right? Friends, Jesus' miracles were meant to testify that his audacious claim to be equal with God was true. It's true. We, we should not normalize miracles. Certainly, God works in our lives, and, and I have no doubt that God can work miracles and heal people and do whatever he wants to do, but the fact of the matter is the miracles were testifying of Jesus. They're not normal. They're meant to say, listen to me. Listen to me. The first witness to Jesus' claim to being equal with God was John the Baptist the second were the miracles Jesus was performing. Now let's look at the third witness, the witness of the Father in the Scriptures. Look there, verse 37, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. And how has the Father testified or given witness to the Son? The answer, the Scriptures. Look at verse 39, y'all, he says, Search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The scriptures, beloved, testify about, about Jesus. You'll remember uh, after his resurrection and he's on the road to Emmaus and he comes along the two disciples, they can't recognize him. And then starting in Moses, it says, right? And going through all the prophets, he, he began to teach them that the scriptures all testified about him. The Old Testament testifies about Jesus. 
Move on down to verse 45 through 7, where Jesus further describes the witness of the Scripture coming to his defense. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Crazy, right? You'll remember back to a few weeks ago when when Jesus is um, calling Matthew and and, uh, there towards the end, they were unwilling to to hear that sinners and tax collectors were were being in, were going to come into the kingdom. And so he tells them two stories about a piece of cloth and and some wine and how the two aren't going to mix. And and Jesus says, uh, in, in a sweeping sort of way, that the old, that is Moses' covenant, was good enough. We're comfortable in our old shoes. But Moses, as we've already read, prophesied of the day that Jesus would come. You see, friends, these religious men believed if they kept the law of Moses and specifically the traditions of the Sabbath, they would inherit eternal life. But Jesus says to them, if you believed Moses, the whole writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And this has got to be cutting to their ears, right? They are the Moses keepers. They are the biggest fans. They have Moses shirts on. Their their jerseys got Moses all over them. And Moses is the first major prophet, so he probably has the number one on his jersey, right? Moses. We're his biggest fans about the things that we want to be. Dear friends, the Jewish people had put their eternal hope in portions of Moses' writings about the Sabbath. They seemingly had forgotten that Moses wrote that there would be a seed coming from Adam and Eve who would crush the head of Satan. Also, that Moses wrote God's very words in Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, saying, I, that's the Father, will raise up a prophet from among there, that's Israel's countrymen, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will, I myself, that's God, will require it of him. You might pause if all you had was that in the Old Testament, you would certainly be saying, who's the judge? And the answer would be, God's the judge. He's going to require it of them. But Jesus has already said that all authority, all judgment, everything has been handed over to him. Dear friends, it is one thing to misplace our hope in the things of the world and become disenchanted or depressed or anxious and, and fearful, but it is quite another problem to put our hope in the wrong person. The wrong eternity. The religious Jews of Jesus' day had put their hope in Moses. And many would suffer eternally for that mistake. God said he would require it of them. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 24, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. To do the Father's will is to do the Son's will. 
To do the Son's will is to do the Father's will. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. (laughs) And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Pay attention here to verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words, we might pause and think back to the condemnation coming from the Lord Yahweh in Deuteronomy 18, who said, Whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Dear friends, how can we know where to set our hope in the one who has claimed authority that is equal with God? We can know where to set our hope when we believe and we act on the words of Jesus who preached the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, you've made it. You treaded water just long enough to where the tips of your toes started hitting the bottom of the pool and you think, oh, that was a lot. It was. Listen, beloved, every generation has to fight for the deity of Christ. Everyone. I don't know why. It's just a challenge. John chapter 5 is, is, is a beacon of light, a foundation of the deity of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.